Are you doing well? So excited. I'm so glad you're glad to be here. Uh, I was like, couldn't even get one person in the front row. My poor wife had to come and support me all the way up here. Everybody else stayed far back as possible. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors and elders here at Aletheia Church. And I, I want to begin with a confession this morning. Um, I want to confess to you that there are times that I do not like reading the Bible. There are times that when I read the Bible, it is dry and lifeless. This thing that is supposed to be this like life-giving Word of God, this bread of life, feels like nothing more than a dry, crusty piece of bread that is turned into a crouton with no butter or seasoning or flavor in it whatsoever, right? And that really bothers me as a follower of Jesus sometimes, because I have this expectation that when I read the Word of God, I should get something life-giving out of it, but yet when it doesn't, it, it really affects me. Now, I've been a follower of Jesus for a little over 20 years now, over half my life, and, um, and, and this, you know, it still affects me in some way when I engage with the Word of God this way, but I guess it shouldn't be surprising in some sense because, you know, I mean, I've read through the Bible more than once in my life. There are some books of the Bible that I have read dozens of times. There are some verses I've probably read hundreds of times, if not a thousand, over the 20 years of being a follower of Jesus, of being a missionary overseas, of spending three and a half years getting my MDiv in seminary, and being a full-time preaching and teaching lead pastor in Seattle for 12 years, and having been with you guys here for the last three years. And maybe you felt that way. Maybe there are times in your life that you feel like the Bible is just dead and lifeless and you're not getting anything out of it. And if you're not there, then I can assure you probably at some point you will feel that way when you read and engage with the Word of God. But the one thing that I do know is that I absolutely love digging into the Word of God. And I want to encourage you, if you ever find yourself at a point where the Bible feels kind of dead and lifeless, and there's not any like major sin in your life that, that is hindering your relationship with God in that moment, what I want to encourage you to do is, is to go a step beyond just reading the Bible and digging into the Bible and pulling out some of the, the great and wonderful treasures there within. And I, I begin this way this morning because... When I was first given the, the, the task of preaching this sermon and another sermon in Ruth, and we were going to go through this book, I was just kind of like, eh. You know, like 14 years ago when I started preaching, the second book of the Bible I ever went through was the book of Ruth. I have heard numerous sermons on the book of Ruth, and I'm kind of like, I just don't want to drudge up the same old things that I've seen before. I know this story of God's rescue and then falling in love and all those things, and yay, go Jesus, right? I mean, that's just kind of how I felt about the thing, if I'm being honest with you. And so a few weeks ago, when I really started to, to get into this passage, though, uh, God really began to work in my heart and my soul and my life because I began to dig up some treasures in the book of Ruth that though I have read this story dozens and dozens of times, it has brought new and fresh life to my soul. And it's because I went beyond just reading the text to diving in and to seeing everything that God was doing 
in the book of Ruth. And there are some amazing things that just take place in this passage today, which I I pray are as profound and as life-giving for you as they have been for me over the last few weeks. So to, to give you a little bit bigger picture of the place and the setting of the book of Ruth is that, you know, Naomi and Ruth and their family had been in the land of Moab. And the land of Moab represents in the story death, destruction, desolation. And they leave the land of Moab and they're coming back to the town of Bethlehem. Does anybody in here know what the word Bethlehem means? The house of bread, all right? Do you think that's important to this story? That they've come from desert and famine and being really rough, destruction and desolation to the house of bread. Yes. Do you think God is trying to get our attention by telling us they are coming to the house of bread? Yes. Now, where have you heard a story like this before that precedes the story of Naomi and Ruth? Come on, guys. The Israelites, right? Where were the Israelites? They were in Egypt. They were in the land of death, destruction, desolation. They are in slavery. And God brings them out of Egypt into the promised land, which in that story was the land flowing with what? Milk and honey, right? So we see that there is a pattern in Scripture developing already that God is trying to communicate where He regularly brings people, His people, out of the land of destruction and death and desolation and brings them to the house of bread, brings them to a land flowing with milk and honey. So in one sense, we can look back in the book of Ruth, back to what happened with the Israelites and the story of the Exodus. But there's more that's also tying in there. When is it that Ruth and Naomi come back from Moab to Bethlehem? This is very important. It is at the beginning of the new year. The Jewish new year begins in the spring. It begins with a festival called the Passover, right? And what do we see take place in the Passover? God provides provision for the nation of Israel by passing over their sins for those who put uh, the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost, okay? But when the Passover's over, going through for the next seven weeks, we get to, at the end of seven weeks, the festival of the first fruits and the festival of weeks. And at the end of that is like the big, huge party in Israel, right? And we're going to see the big, huge party take place in the coming chapters, but it's a massive party celebrating God's provision to the people for all that He had done for them. They, in turn, give the first fruits of what God has provided back to Him in the tithe, and they rejoice and they celebrate. But at the end of that seven weeks, there is another word that we're familiar with in the New Testament, but we don't tie it back to the Old Testament, and that is the word Pentecost. Pentecost is not just this New Testament thing that happens in Acts chapter 2. God had already instituted this cycle within the nation of Israel, within His covenant children, back in the Old Testament. So we see here that in this story, by the time we get to the end of chapter 2 today, 
we are going to be partaking in that feast. And so what Ruth represents for us really is like a first fruit because she is a first fruit of God's salvation of taking foreigners, a Moabite, and bringing them in and including them into the covenant children of God. And so don't miss the timing here. Don't miss the symbolism that at the same time this happens at Pentecost for Ruth, as she is a part of this story, it is where God pours out His Spirit upon the world, bringing in the harvest of Jews and Gentiles alike. So as you can see, this is why I've been excited. I hope you can hear it in my tone and my tenor and my movement this week. And I pray that it would encourage you that when we go beyond the cursory reading of the text and we dive in and we dig in and we see the sovereign God who is sovereign and control over all things, He builds these patterns and these moments into the lives of His children. And they're repeated over and over and over in Scripture so that when we are going through these things, we can go back to these stories and find hope and encouragement even when life seems like it is full of death and desolation and destruction. Let me encourage you with this. For the rest of your life, if you ever find Scripture boring, dive in, dig in, go deeper than a cursory reading of the text. Pull out specific words. Pull out specific themes. Get a good commentary to read along to really expound for you what is taking place And I can almost guarantee if you are willing to be receptive, God will pour out a new amount of grace to you in those moments. So now let's start moving through the text this morning. So far um, in the book of Ruth, we've talked about pain and suffering. Last week, Kevin talked about bitterness, prayerlessness. Uh, we, We did see the nature and the character of God. We looked at the nature and the character of Boaz. We looked at working from favor, not for favor, because we are children of God. And today, what we're really going to see, we are going to see uh, in a more prominent way the righteous nature and character of Boaz in action. So if you will look either up on the screen and your own digital or your own paper device uh, in Ruth Ruth chapter 2, we will start in verses 11 through 14. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When I was reading this passage and getting into this passage, that there were three things that stood out to me that depending on your context and your culture and where you're at in life and where you're from, you would find potentially shocking in this passage. And the first shock that I saw in these few verses 
is this blessing of Boaz, right? I want you to see here that Boaz says in verse 12, he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, I think we might have a tendency to read this as like he is saying, may the Lord bless you. Like, I hope the Lord blesses you for the good that you have shown toward your mother-in-law, Naomi. And that is not what Boaz is saying. What Boaz is saying is, is now, because of your righteous obedience and your righteous conduct as a child of God under his covenant, having come under his protection, under his wings, by you saying that to Naomi, your God is my God, God is now on the hook and obligated to bless you. Now, I know, again, if we've been kind of exposed to prosperity teaching, that we want to shy away from this and run in this because we, we typically want to get toward the words of Jesus. It's like, no, Jesus said we're going to have hardship and persecution. Yes, all right? But just because we're going to have hardship and persecution does not mean in the midst of all that, God is going to abundantly pour out His blessing on His covenant children because as a good father... Fathers who are good fathers always look to pour out blessing on their children. And so Boaz, as we've seen as a righteous man, as a good man, as a godly man, he would have known scriptures like this from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. And if you faithfully obey the, Lord, uh, the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the, Lord, the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall, be, shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Boaz knew that God had obligated himself through his own word by saying, if you are obedient to me under the covenant, I am, I will bless you. And so Boaz pronounces this upon Ruth. And so this may be shocking to you, but it picks up on something that I preached about a few weeks ago about holding God to his promises. And so the question I just want to kind of introduce here for the moment for you just to think about is, do you have the right expectations of God? If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a child of God and you are following Him according to His word, according to His law, according to His covenant, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, do you have an expectation that God will bless you? Or are you just waiting for God to smite you and to strike you, and for bad to come into your life. It drastically changes how we approach every single day. If we are living in fear, thinking God is going to smite us for the smallest mistake, or if we believe that God is a good, good father wanting to pour out blessing upon His children as they walk through the hardship and the persecutions of this sin-fallen world. Do you have proper expectations of God? Are you holding Him to His promises? Because God expects you to hold Him 
to his promises. A second thing that would have been shocking in this passage, probably not to us, but would have definitely been shocking to the people who were sitting around the table and had Boaz invite this foreigner into their meal. Because in verse 10, Ruth recognizes and says, hey, I am a foreigner. And Boaz still invites her in. And the reason people at the table would have been shocked by this invitation is because we have this wealthy, upstanding Israelite man who has now invited a poor, low-class Moabite widow to dine with him at the table. The, the, The conversation at the table would have probably been like this. Never before has anything like this been seen in Israel, right? And if you're familiar with Scripture, you know this is a phrase repeated over and over. But I can tell you, this would have stirred up the hornet's nest. This would have have stirred up the gossip at the table around the city. There have been people who would have been highly offended that Boaz invites Ruth into this setting and into this situation. He is violating all of the social protocol that existed in Israel at the time. Remember, we are in the time of judges. We are not in a good time. We are not in a happy time. We are in a time when people are full of sin, sinful. Sin is running rampant in the world. People were not in the right place. But in this moment, they see Boaz reach out to this foreigner. Now, I know if you know the story, you're like, oh, there's this whole romantic thing going on. Don't, don't, don't go there yet. This is, we, we are not to the romantic portion. This, this part is not taking place. Remove that from the story. This is simply a a, a man of God being honorable toward a a widow, toward a foreigner, toward someone low class, and inviting her in to be a part of the feast that God has prepared and given to His children. And so the quick question of reflection in this shock is, when is the last time you invited an outsider into your circle. Are you known as a person who regularly goes to outsiders? Those who don't meet the conventions of the standard social protocol of our day. Are you known as a person who goes and you invite people into your inner circle, into the inner circle of family and faith that we have? We have opportunities all around us. I mean, just this last week, my family and I, we got to host a PhD student from Iran, right? And it was awesome. This girl was like one of the, I shouldn't say girl, but you know, I'm I'm in my 40s. So this young woman, she's one of the smartest people in all of Iran. I mean, it was like mind-blowing how smart she was. And she she was a mechanical engineer. I mean, it was like hearing her talk, I am dumb, all right? I mean, like I got a master's degree and I am dumb hearing her. I mean, she's like talking about being in buildings, being harnessed up, designing these wind blade turbines, going down in these buildings, fixing problems, like pulling ocean particles out of like oil. I mean, it was, and she's writing the code. She's developing all this stuff, right? Now, if you ever in my life, if I thought I would have had a person from Iran in my house, no. And, and basically every day I took her to work and because she's doing a PhD internship, 
And all she wanted to do was talk about God and Jesus and Christianity and Islam. And she had tons of questions. And how was all that made possible? Because we invited an outsider into our circle of influence. 80% of all international students who come here never get invited into an American's home. God is bringing the nations to us. And are we doing our part to invite outsiders? But it's not just international students, right? You know people and you know classmates. You Maybe it's your roommate. You, you, you know someone on campus in some organization who is the wallflower off to the side. Are you known as a person who invites outsiders into your circles of influence? Shock number three would have not been a person, but it probably would have been Ruth's stomach. Think where she had been. She had been a widow. She had no one to provide for her, no one to protect her. She probably had not eaten to the point of being satisfied in years. And here in this moment, Boaz's provision for Ruth was so profound that this poor, oppressed, foreign widow who hasn't eaten to the point of being full and saying, no no more, I, I don't want any more, maybe ever in her life, but assuredly since her husband has died, here in her lowest state, the one who is in the highest state reaches down, he invites her to draw near, eat to the point that she is full, and provide leftovers for her to take home. This is like Cheesecake Factory on steroids, okay? If you ever been to Cheesecake Factory, like if you can finish a whole meal at Cheesecake Factory, shame on you. All right. Nobody should be eating that much food in one second. That is crazy amounts of food. Now, if I was a 22-year-old guy, I would say, watch me, Daniel, I can do it. Yes, you can, but it doesn't mean you should. And when you're 45 like me, one day you will learn why you shouldn't. Okay. But the mean he he invites her into this grand feast, so much to the point that she goes home with an ephah of barley. Now, depending on how you measure it, you're looking at somewhere around 30 to 50 pounds. One guy said he calculated this to the point where this is like going home with 672 slices of whole grain bread. All right? So you imagine someone eating who hasn't eaten to the point of being full in so long and then going home with the ability to produce that much food. It was an overwhelming amount of provision that had been poured out to her. And so the reflection question here I would challenge you with is, when is the last time that anyone in your life would say about you, that they would say about their own life, that their life was full and overflowing because of the generosity you had shown to them? If you examined your own life, when is the last time anyone could say that their life was full and overflowing because of your generosity toward them. These are our challenging moments. These are challenging questions for us as followers of Jesus. And I'm not trying to induce guilt upon you. I am trying to induce some conviction. But it's because I want you to be motivated by what God has done for you. Because as Christians, we should be motivated by what God has done for us. And want to extend that same grace and mercy to others out of God's provision for us. So I pray that these questions challenge you 
as you move on, not just through today, but not, and not just through this week, but over the course of your life. But I also want to point out, Boaz's provision for Ruth is, is not just a one-time single incident, nor does he continue to provide for her with no effort on her part. Look at verses 15 and 16. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So we see in this example, he provides protection. He provides provision for her, but she must also put in effort to work and to partake in this provision that has been made available to her. Now, we're going to take a hard right turn from where, where we have been for a few moments, just in this section, in these two verses. But bear with me, but I want to pull this back. because This is very important, because now we're going to go beyond just what we've been talking about, and we're going to look at bigger structures just for a moment. Because, again, in our world today, there exists this big conversation of what we should and shouldn't do to help people at the individual level, um, at the church level, at the government level. Everybody is having these things about what, what are we obligated to do um, as human beings toward other human beings. Um, there's a, but, but the question is, again, that I want to get back to is not, not so much at the giant level, but what are we doing about it, right? Because so much of the conversation, especially when the voting and politics is, which party is going to do the most to help the most people, right? And that's an important conversation, but I don't think it's the most important conversation. And I just want to be honest with you. I think it's a cop-out for most of us because we spend most of our effort and energy angry at whoever's in charge and the politician that we don't look back on ourselves. And we, 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 um, we set our, our responsibility to the side because we, we spend so much of our time arguing about other people. And so what I want to challenge us with is what are we doing about it as the people of God and the children of God, because God's word says to us in the New Testament, James, the half-brother of Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 27, he says to the church, religion, which Christianity, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it is important that we are holy and righteous in our character, in our conduct. But it is just as important that we visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The Bible would call this the poor and oppressed. Now, notice this. This does not say it is the government's responsibility. It is not the Democrats' responsibility, the Republicans' responsibility, the Independent, the Green Party, the Tea Party, whatever party you want to be a part of, progressive, liberal, conservative, none of those things. The responsibility falls squarely upon the people of God. So the question is, are you, are we doing our part to be obedient to God's commandment to us in Scripture? Because what, what we see in this example, and, and I mean, this is just an amazing example. If I was going to develop a model, if you were going to develop a model of what your responsibility toward the poor and oppressed should look like, this is exactly it. And you may not realize that it's here in these few verses, but the model is here. 
And I will tell you, if, there is a, if, you, if this really interests you, there is a book called When Helping Hurts. I could not recommend it enough. It's about 10 years old. It is the gold standard when it comes to helping people. And it challenges the ideas of the way governments help. It challenges the, idea, the way that individuals help. And it challenges the idea of the way churches help people. And many times the way we help people is more detrimental to them than it is helpful. Just giving someone something is not the answer. And I'll tell you why. Put this in your brain and beg God for it to travel from here to here. When we simply give something to another person, we rob them of the greater blessing. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. When we only give things to people and do not build structures around them and help them to move from the point to where they can only receive to where they can also give and be a blessing to others, we are robbing them of the greater blessing. And all around the world, Christian missionaries have failed in this regard. I speak as one who has been there and have seen what these structures do. These structures exist around the world. They exist from the churches into these countries. They exist from our government into our people today. They exist all around the world. We are called to build structures and to give in such a way that people can then, in turn, give toward others. We must build our models upon this. And look what it is that Boaz does for here. We see in this story, in these few verses, an incredible model of a person who God describes as poor and oppressed. They meet the biblical qualification for help. This person also is more than willing to do the work necessary to survive and get themselves out of the situation that they are in. The Bible's commands in 1 Thessalonians is if a man does not work, they should not eat. If a person is not willing to put in the effort of what needs to be done to get themselves out of the situation they are in, the Bible says you actually have no obligation to help them. Now again, I, I, I speak to this not just as some dude with white privilege on high, right? I, I have a brother who's a homeless drug addict in Oregon, okay? Like help, 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 all these things, right? But like, I, I have no obligation to help my, my 41-year-old brother right now because he does not want to help himself. He does not want to get out of this. My church in the Northwest was five miles from a massive gospel mission. We went and picked up dudes from the gospel mission every day. I have been involved in their lives. I have, mar- I have seen them come out of these situations. I have performed their, the, the, the wedding ceremonies for them. I, I've, done, I've been super involved in, in my life. I, I, I speak from a good amount of experience. Not perfect experience, but perfect experience in this. If someone does not want to be helped, you are not obligated to help them. And many times your attempts to help them is not helping them. You are only hurting them. And it's painful, and it is hard to watch people go down that road. I've watched my brother go down this road for decades now. It's painful, but there's nothing I can do to get him out of it. Sometimes you have to let people go and experience the consequences of their sin, as hard and as painful as it is. And just keeping them propped up is not doing them the best amount of good. 
Boaz is a good and righteous man who takes notice and he investigates Ruth when he sees her in his field. In verse 8, he invites her into a protected space to keep her from outside harm. She responds with graciousness and thanks toward the one who has given her help. He acknowledges her righteous character in this situation. She acknowledges her state as an outsider and the favor bestowed upon her being offered a place to work and protection. She has proven, fit, proven to be faithful and trustworthy. And when she does that, when he has seen her character, he invites her into the community and his life more and more and more. So just because you... Now, so let me hear this. When I say invite people into your circle of influence, I am not saying you go and take someone off the street who's a dangerous criminal, if that be the person you engage with, and you invite them in, hey, come live with me because God said I was supposed to help you. No. Notice there are degrees to which the invitation comes in, you know, into this situation. This takes place over a period of time. We get in a couple of verses, but it's over a kind of seven-week period where this has been observed. He has heard the stories. He heard stories about her. He saw her, and she gets invited deeper and deeper and deeper into this life and into this relationship. And so um, he then gives her opportunity to provide for herself and improve her current situation. And what, what, I, what I want you to see, what, what we're going to take out of this, is that this heart and this pattern of God's people getting involved in the lives of the poor and oppressed changes lives, church. Not only does it change lives, it changes generations. Because this is what we see as the end result of this story. And, and what is so profound about this is that what, what takes place by Boaz being so generous to Ruth and Ruth going home with this ephah of barley, dragging it all the way home, the woman who just previous is like, my life is so miserable. God's hand is so far against me that I have changed my own name from Naomi to bitter is now extolling and shouting the praises of God. Because one man got involved in the life of a poor and oppressed widow, this woman who was completely bitter against God and thought God hated her, in the next instant is overwhelmed by the grace that God has shown her. Look at verses 17 through 23. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up, and she went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. 
So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So um, what I want you to see in this specifically is that when this harvest gets brought in, when this provision gets brought in to the life of Naomi, she says this, and it comes out better in the NIV in chapter 2, verse 20, when she says, the Lord bless him, right? She's not saying really, may he be blessed. It's much stronger. Like She's saying like, once again, kind of this promise of God, God bless him. She is calling on God to bless this man. And what sometimes is confusing, it says, he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. The he here is not referring to Boaz. It is referring to God himself. In this moment, when this provision comes in, there is this awakening moment in the life of Naomi that she remembers, she recalls that now, oh my good, praise God, because he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. And here, as we look into this verse, this is one of those digging in things. This is the one that really brings this to life. We read this in English, and you, you might like what I've said so far, and you might be impressed by the, by the Naomi thing, but there is, a, there is a word here that is so pregnant and full of meaning that we need to hold on to and that we need to remember as the children of God. Because when it says here, he has not stopped showing kindness, that word kindness is one of the most important words in all the Bible. There are, there's kind of a who's who list of most important words in the Bible. This word right here that we just read is kindness, and you think, oh, he was nice, is so pregnant and full of meaning and so beyond what you've probably ever wrestled with and thought and, and tried to grasp because the word here, and I'm not going to try to do it in the true Hebrew, is hesed, right? H-E-S-E-D. If you want to do a word study, I would encourage you to do this one. The, you will not be able to exhaust the end of this word has said. Okay? It, it sometimes gets translated in the Bible as kindness. It gets sometimes it's translated as loving kindness, like we sang in the third song. Sometimes uh, it gets translated as steadfast love. Uh, the, the word has said is it, it, it's this word, it is this covenant faithfulness, all right? It's this covenant faithfulness of God toward His children. And it includes so many things. The words that we love, right? Love, grace, mercy, kindness. All the positive things that we love about God and His interaction into our life is wrapped up in this one word, has said. Okay? It is all the positive acts of loyalty and faithfulness that a healthy relationship inspires. Acts that inevitably go far beyond duty and obligation. This covenant has said, this covenant faithfulness includes God's kindness to his people and their consequent kindness to one another. So in this moment, Boaz is, his generosity is a model of God's has said in action. And because this man chose to get involved 
in this way, with this provision, you see this woman begin to extol the praises of Yahweh because through another human being, she has seen the covenant faithfulness of God come into her life that she then responds of acknowledging that God in His covenant faithfulness, even though she had left Bethlehem, even though she went to foreign fields, even though she had turned her back on God, even though these events of pain and suffering had come into her life, she recognized in this moment, Yahweh does not turn His back on His covenant children. No matter how far or how long we run. Don't you think this word is important for us to know as followers of Jesus? Don't you think that when you are in the deep, dark place and you have run from God and you know you are running from God and you are wondering if God will take you back and accept you back, if God is still favorable toward you, if He is still propitious toward you, as we see in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, don't you think you need to know that God always has, has said for you, as his covenant child. This is why it's so important that we dig into the word of God and we uncover, because if you go and you look at the word of God, this word is everywhere. And don't you think that word has a little deeper meaning than being kind to someone, being nice to someone? Sometimes, English just cannot capture what is expressed in the Hebrew. This story should serve as a reminder, filling us full of hope that God is so full of said that even when we walk away from the house of bread to the fields of death, destruction, and desolation, that He will still be favorable towards us, working all things together for good with whom He has initiated a covenant with. And if that doesn't blow your heart and your mind wide open this morning, then you might be dead. I just pray that overwhelms your soul in ways it has never has before. Because that is an incredibly powerful story. To know that God responds to us when we are absolutely at our worst. He still pursues us and does good for us because He loves us. Plain and simple. Not because of anything we've done, but because He loves us. This is why you see over and over, repeated in Scripture, the steadfast love of God, God's loving kindness, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. Psalm 117, 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, 
And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Boaz is the model of Hesed in action. He is how Hesed can transform not only one life, but multiple lives, and it can be carried throughout the generations. But in this one verse where Naomi says and acknowledges the kindness of God, she also follows it up in this verse with one of the most important other words in all of Scripture. When she says, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. I'm going to briefly touch on this word. Kevin is going to pick up on it in greater detail in a few weeks. This idea of kinsman redeemer, this idea of redeemer is massive in Scripture. God plants this idea in His Old Testament covenant as a foreshadow of what is to come in Jesus. And if you go and you study in depth the five responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer, of the redeemers in Israel toward other people inside of Israel, you will see these were the type and shadow being perfectly fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Now, I'm going to concentrate on one of the five just for a brief moment because one of those five ideas that God gives us about the Redeemer is that they would maintain the freedom of individuals within the family by buying back those who have sold themselves into slavery because of poverty. So there was a responsibility by Boaz to do this as a kinsman redeemer. But you can tell he is not doing this out of duty and obligation at this point, because it's not until later that he this that part is introduced into the story. What we see is Boaz functions in this way toward Ruth and Naomi. He essentially will buy back them who have been sold into slavery because of poverty. Now, so much of the idea of slavery in the Bible is very different from how we talk about chattel slavery today and what happened between those who were captured in Africa and brought over to this country, um, staining the, the history of our nation. What is being discussed here is that many people, when you got into debt, like credit card debt, if you couldn't pay it off, there was no such thing as bankruptcy. You then had to go tie yourself as an indentured servant to this person until you paid off that debt. And God's law says this is how you pay it off, this is how long it takes, and this is what it looks like. But the kinsman redeemer, if he had the means and the necessary resources, he was responsible to take on that person's poverty in a sense, buy them out of that situation, and redeem them so that they could go free. Now, I pray this gives a little bit more idea to what we, when we use the word redemption and we use the word redeem as followers of Jesus, these are the ideas that would have been loaded into the minds of people in the Old Testament, of people in the New Testament, 
that they were people who were all around them who were sold into slavery because they could not pay their debts. And this is all kind of this pointing forward where Boaz is this redeemer that we see here in the book of Ruth. He is only pointing to the perfect redeemer that is going to come when God steps into our world, steps onto this planet, out of his high position, into our low position. And this is very well summed up in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 when it says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by earnestness of others that your love uh, also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, in his, in, by his poverty, might become rich. Do, do you see this play out in the story of Naomi and Ruth, right? Boaz is this type and shadow, and Jesus is the perfect fulfillment. This is why like, the book of Hebrews, right? The theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And the, every story, Jesus is the better tabernacle, the better Moses, better than the angels, better the better Melchizedek. In the same way, though not included in the Hebrew story, it is exactly what we see here. Jesus is the better Boaz. Jesus fulfills all of this. Boaz is a wonderful example. Jesus is the perfect example. We see this in Ephesians 1.7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. When we say that we were bought by the blood of Christ, this is what we're talking about. We were sold as slaves to sin, and Jesus, in His grace, in His mercy, in His kindness, in His said, comes to us, redeems us, buys us back from the penalty of sin, from the penalty of hell, by redeeming us through His blood. That is how we were purchased. And in that moment, that is when we are granted the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Titus 2.14, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. This sums up everything that we've talked about today, that Jesus comes, He buys us back with His blood, from all of our sin, all the lawlessness, all the, all the breaking of God's law that we have done in our lives. And the purpose is to purify us by giving us a new um, standing that says we have been declared righteous and holy, justified before Him. But in that standing, we move into a state and continue to move a state because we are His own possession and we are zealous for good works. We are sanctified by the Spirit, becoming more like the one who has redeemed us from the sin and from the curse and from the penalty of hell. And so this Jesus, it says in Hebrews 9.15, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, these stories are loaded with words that we should look before the story. What was God doing before Naomi and Ruth? What is God doing in the story of Naomi and Ruth? But they're also pointing forward to what God will do through the person and work of Jesus. 
Because Jesus' redemption is not full and complete. Because we are not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. The kinsman redeemer has so many more parts to it, and Jesus will perfectly fulfill every single one of those. So I pray you come back in the next few weeks to see what the full redemption looks like when we see Jesus as our full and our complete redeemer. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and call the the band back up um, this morning to prepare our hearts for uh, communion. And if whoever's getting the lights, you want to go ahead and and, and get the lights. Um, If you're new with us, uh, one of the things we do here at Aletheia Church uh, fairly regularly is we just want to give you space to think, to reflect, to meditate, to confess sin, just wherever you're at. We know everyone in here is a is a is in a is in a different spot this morning, um, and and we don't know how this message might have have impacted you. Um, you may want to get with somebody near you and have a little conversation, and uh, and, and talk. Um, we would also invite you if you haven't yet grabbed communion. Uh, for those who are followers of Jesus, there's communion here. There's also communion in the back. I, I will lead us through that in a few moments, but I'm just going to uh, invite the band just to kind of play instrumentally. Um, and, uh, and I'm just going to lead us through a little bit of time of corporate reflection and, and prayer. And uh, um, we'll, just, we'll just pray that God's Spirit does some cool things here in our hearts and our minds and our lives this morning. Church, just take a moment to reflect upon the has said of your God. If you're in a space where you have been running from God, know that you can come back. If you're not in that space, but you've been there before, just reflect on where you were. And remember, God's has said toward you. Father, I pray that your has said would just overflow our souls.
pray that you would give us a fresh touch of your as said this morning. A fresh touch of your grace and your mercy and your goodness and your faithfulness and your loving kindness. I pray that we would feel it in the deepest part of our souls, knowing that we are loved beyond all that we could imagine. That God, we are fully known by you, but yet we are also fully loved by you. That you have declared that our sins have been thrown as far as the east is from the west. They have been dropped into the depths of the ocean and will be remembered no more. May that truth and that reality overwhelm us. Church, in light of that reality, let's ask God to give us opportunities, give us divine appointments in the coming week and in the coming semester to be has said in action toward those who are foreigners and outside of our current circles. Father, so often in life, we are so focused on ourselves that we forget to look out to the world around us. Father, I pray that like Jesus said, that we should pray for the harvest, for the fields are white and are ready to be harvested. Father, there are men and women and children in this community that are ready to be harvested and brought into the kingdom of God in the rest of 2021. Father, I pray that not only would you show us these opportunities, not only would you bring about divine appointments, but Father, I think the thing that, uh, that, that we so often forget to pray for is we, we pray for these opportunities. But knowing that so often when these opportunities arrive, there is an enemy. There is a spiritual enemy. There are dark forces in this world that want to prevent people from getting the good news of God. They want to prevent the children of God from stepping into situations. They want to prevent the children of God from inviting outsiders into their influence and thoughts fill their mind and worries and concerns. God, I pray that we would be obedient to the commandment that is spoken over 300 times in your word. Do not fear. God, may we be bold. May we boldly approach the throne of grace from which your has said flows. And may we boldly approach those who are the enemies of God and who are at enmity with you. And may we reach out with has said toward them. And may we be instruments of redemption 
leading them to the one who has redeemed them from the curse of sin and death and hell. If you have your communion, go ahead and prepare those elements. The wafer that uh, represents the body of Christ that was broken on our behalf and the juice representing the blood that was shed, the redemption of our sins. Jesus, we take this time and this space to recognize and to remember and to rejoice that you who were rich became poor so that we who were poor might become rich. May we live in remembrance of your sacrifice for us. With that, you may now take communion.